Welcome to a special Biota podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today, two bits of audio from a recent conference at NASA Ames, hosted by Biota's own Bruce Damer. The first is a series of questions to Will Wright of SimCity, SimEarth, Sims and soon-to-be Spore fame. And I was going to include his presentation, however, there are a number of technical difficulties relating to his presentation's audio. It also is pretty accurately represented in the various Google videos of Will Wright giving Spore presentations, and he makes a number of references to what's going on on the screen, which never really works particularly well in an audio podcast. However, the questions are new information, and it's something which I think is particularly interesting and relevant to the discussion associated with artificial life. The first question comes from Rudy Rucker, who ironically is also the speaker of the second part of the audio in this evening's podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the question series from Will Wright. Unfortunately, I think two of the questions were missed due to background noise and various other problems, and some of the questions that I'm putting in the podcast still are a little garbled. So wherever I have done an actual edit, I will put a a one-second silence just to indicate that the audio has been edited at that point, and then move very quickly into Rudy's lecture. Now, Rudy suffers technical difficulties initially, so I'll cut the discussion associated with technical difficulties, and I think his discussion, whilst it touches on a number of areas, as Will Wright's questions touch on as well, they all have some venting into the broader artificial life discussion that has gone on in the Biota podcast to date. I will start now with Rudy's question. Well, one question, of course, because uh, somebody told me this at the Game Developers Conference a couple of years ago, so I assume you can get it. And the other, uh, I, I know you have an interest in artificial life, and I was wondering, are you planning to have any sort of non-player characters in here that are sort of evolving on their own? Well, when you're playing the evolution game, when you're playing the evolution game, you were playing as one species. And uh, you control the evolution of that species. You, every time you mate, you go back and you her, you get a few points to spend on upgrading your creature, and then you go back and you have to live and eat and survive. Other creatures are trying to eat you, or they might be friendly. Uh, in some sense, we're controlling the uh, external evolution of your opponents. <clears throat> but we're doing it because of the brute force. By pulling from the database, we're going to have millions and millions of creatures that we can pull from and basically interpolate between those to evolve your opponents. Uh, in some sense, it's kind of ironic because you, as the player, are doing intelligent design. You're not even doing evolution. You're actually an intelligent designer when you're designing what you're doing. Like. So we're not actually simulating evolution in that sense. No. Well, we are kind of simulating the evolutionary system around you. But uh, as you know, to really simulate evolution, you know, in a real way, you need, you know, very large populations, in, you know, thousands of generations. It's not something that you're going to get with a few hundred over ten generations. So you're sort of um, shortcutting it. Um, yeah. Uh, so we're actually trying to keep, we're trying to illustrate evolution in the most fun way possible because to really simulate evolution, you have to be doing such large statistical data sets that any kind of player involvement um, or empathy or connection to these things becomes totally removed. I'm, uh, well, I'm, uh, this is a comment here. I'm writing a book chapter for a scientific book about intelligent design creationism versus evolution, and you know, we, we have authors who, there's a cardinal, a Vatican cardinal writing, and uh, rabbis and whatnot, and, and proponents of one side or the other, and I'm writing the chapter on, on uh, artificial life, and 
I'm covering spore as an example of an intelligent design type metaphor uh, versus a Carl Sims, Tom Ray kind of turn it on and let, let it go on its own and come back after three weeks and see what's there. Um, so it's, it's interesting that you're confirming I, I made the right choices. Uh, so well, yeah, I think, well, even like any Carl Sims or Tom Ray type system, they're the ones designing the fitness steps, right? Right. So now they're indirectly specifying one step removed. Right, right, exactly right. So uh, artificial life definitely is a is a lightning rod, you know, of our generation. Fascinating. Fascinating field. Hi, Will. I'll try to make this question fast. Um, I just Googled to double check my facts. Uh, we are, in fact, the last in the nation in science in California. I thought this was 46. We're actually 50th in the nation. Um, Ten years ago, I made the argument to our principal that I would be allowed to buy some city and run it in our high school media lab. She let me do it for a couple of hours a week. And the kids said, wow, we are learning by inference what this is about. So the question is, given our inferiority in science, technology, engineering, math, what I'm seeing behind this is physics, genetics, atmospheric chemistry. Is there anything that the teachers of tomorrow can do to say, OK, you're playing this thing, but let's be explicit about the science, technology, and so forth underneath it. Are you going to do any of those educational extensions? Well, first of all, I want to have you know, the manual cover you know, basically uh, jumping points for the kids <clears throat> if they get interested. This covers a lot of, as you mentioned, pretty wide range of scientific disciplines. Um, and really, as I said at the beginning, at the outset, what I really want to do is motivate kids to get interested in these fields. I'm not especially you know, concerned with um, downloading the right facts to them you know, from the game, because you know, every kid in essence has the Library of Congress on their desktop right now, but they're just not using it. Uh, but if you can motivate them to get interested in that subject, and also how cool it is, you know, they'll pull it out. And if they're pulling it, it's so much more powerful when you're pushing it on them. The, uh, you know, what I've found is that when people play these games, unless I'm silly or whatever, uh, at some point, uh, they start coming back and arguing about the assumptions that I put in the simulation. And to me, that's the win state. You know, the point at which they start realizing that this is a model, it's not reality. They have a separate model of reality. This model will crystallize their internal model. Uh, to the point where they can say, you know, the exceptions they have in that model. That's not the way African model works. I think the way it you know, works this way. I think the model has been successful, you know, and crystallizing their internal model. So when they come back and argue, you know, about the assumptions of the model, I think that's great. I think there, you know, there's a whole kind of brand of modeling where you want the uh, assumptions underneath to be transparent. But of course, any simulation is nothing but a set of assumptions. So it's not like you can really neutralize any set of assumptions within a model. Um, that's why I'm more concerned with making those assumptions. And then rule set, we're trying to discover back in the prototyping phase. I'm really concerned with making that interesting, fun, and engaging so that they do get motivated. Because if they never get motivated, all the rest of it is for naught, right? So that's my first and foremost priority is get them motivated and interested to where they spend 10 hours, 20 hours playing with this. And then they start arguing about how screwy the assumptions were and you know, how we're full of it for assuming this, that, and the other. But uh, yeah, one of my old favorite quotes was that, you know, Education is not the filling of a pail, but sparking the fire. And you see that so clearly with computer games. That, you know, sometimes, not just games, too. Uh, kids, you know, when they get interested in the subject, there's usually like something. Maybe it's a movie they saw, a play they played with, a friend of theirs that introduced them to something that they just get totally obsessed you know, And a lot of times they'll end up being Pokemon or whatever. And parents do this all the time. And I think these games have the power to connect them to things in the real world that are relevant that will serve them for the rest of their life. You know, they're just not always being used I, I got turned on to artificial life by having Ant Farm as an eight-year-old. Oh, 
Yeah. 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 Uh, next qu question. Two questions. I was wondering if you are thinking at all about developing APIs for people to extend the functionality we put into the game. And I was also curious uh, in terms of the architecture, it sounds like this is going to be a, a centralized hosting model, the content being uh, in, hosted by the, the company. Uh, I'm wondering if, if somebody like NASA wanted to you know, make lots of data accessible to bring into the game, mm. uh, something like that would be possible. Well, we're actually working with our fan sites right now, which has been a great resource uh, for ways that they have access to our database for aggregation and stuff. Uh, again, the data for this stuff is basically trivial. Those creatures and the UFO and stuff I showed you, in computer memory with the full mesh and texture, they're you know, between two to four megabytes, which is really typical for a computer model. But they all compress down to about 10 or 20K of data. So each one of these compresses down to a very small genome. And that's what we're actually seeing back and forth across the net. Uh, so we're going to be providing this for the game players with no support or anything, because the amount of data that we're actually seeing back and forth is trivial. That means embedded in the JPEG thumbnail, the genome for everything is embedded in the thumbnail. So um, we're hoping that you know, fan sites will have easy ways to access our database and also aggregate this stuff on their own. You can also run the game without being on the net at all, because this stuff compresses so small, we can on disk provide a database of 10,000 features in a very small footprint. But yeah, we're not against that at all. In terms of the API for uh, connecting to the game systems, these systems are so tightly integrated and highly engineered, um, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it would be a huge amount of work. And so that would probably depend on exactly kind of what the uh, initiative was. You know, in some of our older games, we've done that before for universities that are doing things like AI research or whatever. Uh, for the games from way back, just a few months ago, I got Electronic Arts to open source the original SimCity for the OLPC project, the one I have a child. Um, so that's now available for free, open source, so kids can actually go into the simulation, rewrite it, customize it, learn from it, whatever. So that's something I would like to see our industry do more often, is use some of the older games that we're not really making money from anyway, you know, hand them over to the community, let kids kind of use them and kind of take them where they want. Questions? So uh, if I might ask, uh, what did you put in the bin for uh, Spore 2? Sorry um, to ask that. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. That, you know, obviously, when you're dealing with a game about the universe, you can put a lot into it. Um, and well, as I was mentioning about, you know, we want to release the picture editor first, and then support the PC game. We're actually looking at a lot of other ways that we can take these tools, you know, the leverage from these tools, off in totally different directions. We got one of those uh, 3D printers in our office, um, which are colored now, by the way. They print out 3D color models. And now we can export anything from the game and just print it out. So we have all these printouts and creatures and vehicles and whatnot. Um, that's a really cool direction. Uh, you know, obviously, we can do things like trading cards. Um, there are just a lot of different directions that this could go to where it's not just a PC game, but it's kind of more, you know, in game terms of franchise. Uh, but I would like to imagine something that's kind of like cooking on, but an educational franchise where you know kids are kind of uh, more connected to real issues, science, stuff like that. Uh, I'd say there are kind of directions we can expand this kind of in the PC space, like Spore 2.0 on the PC. I can think of a lot of things that I would want to add to it. Um, but Spore as a franchise, in terms of what are the other ways in which this can become kind of an identity or brand 
that you know is a kind of a fun take on the universe and evolution and biology. Uh, I think that probably interests me more than you know what sports or the PC game is going to come. I'm more interested in how to get out of the box in the world. Uh, just curious, what was the budget? Uh, we're north of 30 million at this point. Um, you know, which I know sounds like a high number. Uh, <laughs> game development, yeah, I mean that, that's actually almost reasonable in game development nowadays. You know, game budgets have skyrocketed, you know, pretty similar to mid-level film budgets at this point. Um, we actually did this with a team that was about half the size of what's typically done for AAA titles now. Because of the fact that everything in the game is procedural, you know, most game teams right now, over half the team is content. Uh, artists making models, doing textures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in addition to doing you know, our art procedurally, all the planets, creatures, books, uh, about half of the music is procedural as well. Uh, depending on, you know, when you're creating a creature, that creature is actually generating a unique thing. We work with Brian Eno, who's doing our soundtrack, and he's done a lot of the work with procedural music. And he never really had a format for it, because he can't really sell procedural music on a CD. Um, and so, you know, he was a bit kind of frustrated. He loved doing procedural music, but there was no format. Except games are like a perfect format for him. So, uh, and we actually have like little tools where you design your city. You get a little musical tool where you can actually um, regenerate new music within the city uh, based upon his algorithms. So how many people are on the team? About 100. Yeah. I keep asking. Your comment about Brian, you know, um, makes me think about uh, the the interplay between creativity, artistic creativity, and scientific creativity, and and the, the way that you are invoking creativity in, in the game that you're creating. Yeah. Uh, and and just how I guess maybe if you could just talk a bit more about the thought process that went into uh, inspiring people to be creative. I mean that's that's such a big part of what you're creating here. Yeah, I think the underlying thread to what you're saying is that. Um, it's actually amazing how very simple things, when they come together, can make surprising elaborate results, depending on what, how you mix them. And this is kind of generally referred to as emergence, you know, in computer terms. It's an emergence. Very simple rules can emerge into very complex behavior. Uh, the same is actually true in some sense of art, music, and the tools that we give the players here. We want to give them the simplest of tools that, when combined, give them the widest set of possibilities in space that they're dealing with. You know? So there's this kind of ratio. How simple can the tool be? How many levers can I hand you that you can, by manipulating, create the widest variety of interesting things? And that's kind of an interesting caveat because uh, it's easy to build a generative system that you know fills your screen with static, and every setting of the dog is going to be a different static screen, and they're all different, but they're not interesting. And so a lot of what we do in engineering these systems is try to constrain the the output space to stuff that you know depending on the format is something that's aesthetically or functionally interesting. Um, but give you the simple, almost somewhat intuitive mapping too as to what this lever is causing. As you move this lever back and forth, you want to see you know, some obvious kind of connection with the, the output between what's the genotype and the phenotype. So, and that's something that's it's not easily engineered and it's really more almost of a discovery process, which again is why we spend so much time prototyping. And even though we're going to throw away you know, 190 of those 200 prototypes, that was extremely valuable. So you, at the very beginning of your talk, you mentioned education yeah. and your experience in the education system uh, before we were sixth grade and after sixth grade in Montessori. Yeah. Um, how do you see tools like this playing a role in, in what we consider formal education uh, for young people? 
It's tricky in the world of standardized testing because in games and the type of things that they teach, uh, tend to by their very nature resist standardized testing. You know, any game in essence Maybe that's is. Was that? Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I think it is actually. Um, you know, every game that you buy really is a problem. You're selling something to somebody paying you fifty dollars to give them a problem. You know, you say, here, solve this problem. Uh, hopefully, the problem is interesting, and they can apply some creativity to it. But really, games are about problem solving. Whether it's you know shooting all the guys in that army or building a thriving civilization, uh, the player then you know the question is kind of like, how big is the solution space? You know, most games have a very constrained, very rigid solution space where there's one way to rescue the princess. Uh, I'm much more interested in games that have a very wide solution space, so there's you know a million ways to do it correctly, and that way the players are being much more creative by where they fall in that solution space, and drives me toward kind of more emergent systems that can generate a larger solution space. But uh, it's also really interesting when you put your typical 12-year-old in front of something like this that has a million knobs and buttons and all these possibilities. They just start banging buttons, observing what's happening. And they intuit the rules of the system in the simulation. It's amazing how quickly a 12-year-old can build a middle model from a complex simulation just by sitting there and pressing buttons on their Xbox. Uh, typically, you hand that to an adult over 40, and they want to read the manual. They want to know what to do. They want to know. They don't want to fail. You know. And kids embrace failure-based learning. Adults avoid it like the plague. But uh, in essence, kids are practicing the scientific method, right? They sit there, they experiment, they look at the result, they try to build a model in their head, they hypothesize about what the underlying model is, test that with a new experiment, and continually refine that kernel model. And so kids are very naturally born toward the scientific instinct. And games are probably the one environment where they really get to practice and refine the scientific method, you know, using the scientific method. And I think, you know, in our culture, you know, both parents and a lot of educators don't recognize that as such. You know, they just kind of Games are about the same as drugs, you know. All my kids playing games, too bad I can you know. But, yeah, and that's an unfortunate kind of cultural position that we're in right now. Uh, one interesting point Tom Cochran mentioned earlier that he was very impacted by SimCity. So, in a sense, your earlier creations like SimCity created a sort of SimCity generation of engineers who wanted to do large scale visual simulation. I'm wondering in, in 15, 20 years, what kind of scientific and engineering creative minds have been the spore generation. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think SimCity, you know, the kind of the core of that was systemic thinking. Um, you know, usually when people look at a city, they would analyze the traffic patterns or the, you know, industrial pollution or whatever. They wouldn't look at the whole thing as like one complete system. It's an organic system. Uh, you know, I think spore is going, uh, it has a lot of that under the hood, but it's almost, the essence of spore is more about the fact that all these systems um, can be very creative, high leverage, anybody can come in, make a very imaginative world. It still has simulation pushing back on it, um, but at the same time, there's a lot of artistic expression within that solution space that the simulation is kind of constraining you in. So you can find a solution that fits the simulation, but at the same time, still be very unique in kind of a different dimension. I right. uh, probably have enough. How are we on time? Well, we were scheduled to finish at 2.15. Oh, okay. Uh, it's Margaret Burbitt. Uh, there's a question. Oh, Margaret's there. So I think uh, we have a couple more minutes. If there's a question over there. A question up here. I just wanted to follow up on Stephanie's question. Yeah. Which is, uh, I'll follow up on Stephanie's question, which is, uh, <clears throat> you let them bend the science rules, but how much? I mean, in, and you're thinking about how to design these things. Obviously, you 
assume warp 10 or something like that, or you don't worry about how long it takes to get there. But when you're building your planet, uh, you know, how tall can a tree be in well, heavy atmosphere and heavy gravity versus light gravity, so on and so forth? This is, this is a toy world. And as such, it's more important that it has consistent rules than those rules exactly match our rules, the rules of reality. Uh, so, for instance, we have you know kind of climate in terms of if the atmospheric pressure were to go way up, we start getting global warming and sea levels would rise here. Um, that's kind of part of this simple little model that once kids kind of learn and understand that, um, they can kind of work around it. They're building a model of this system, and they you know I think you understand whenever you see a character or a comic book or anything that it's a representation of reality. And you know, Charlie Brown doesn't look like a real boy you know, because he's an artistic representation. Uh, so I think it's more important that they understand this is a toy simulation toy model, and they're trying to intuit and understand, reverse engineer the rules of this model, which is a simplified representation of reality. Uh, that's what models really are. Uh, and that's what a map is. If I hand you a map, it doesn't look anything like the city. But it removes a huge amount of detail, and it's an abstract representation for a very specific purpose. Okay, but you do try to be internally consistent. Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, it would be, that would be really frustrating if the rules of the game were basically stochastic, or changing underneath me all the time. Um, and I'm building a model, and it's correct one minute, and you can correct the next. Yeah, so we definitely don't want that. So we should probably call time at this point. I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Valley in 1986 to teach computer science at San Jose State University and has also worked at Autodesk. He's published 29 books, including nonfiction popular science books on topics such as relativity, infinity, the fourth dimension, and information. His latest book, The Life Box, The Seashell, and the Soul, is about the meaning of computation. So it is my pleasure to introduce Rudy Recker, whose talk is called Life after the orphan net, and I'm sure he can tell us exactly what that means. I get sort of tired of doing PowerPoint, so I decided to put my talk on my blog. Uh, so you can follow along if you go to rudybrocker.com/blog, but it doesn't show up that well on the projector, so I made an HTML version. That, uh, I started it as a math professor in Silicon Valley, and uh, was teaching computer science at San Jose State, and I got a job at Autodesk because uh, John Walker, who friended me, <clears throat> he liked my science fiction. He was the, one of the founders, and we were doing cellular automata together. And then, <clears throat> and then I got involved in uh, cyberspace, and there's a project called Autodesk Cyberspace, and it was trying to be a sort of proprietary source to to make these 3D worlds that we see everywhere now. And, in computer games and in something like And uh, I wrote a novel about that. It's called The Hack on the Ants. And the main villain in the book was John Walker, which he's a friend of mine, so I thought it was funny. But uh, in there, the ants escape and get into reality. So it's a case where we have virtual reality invading real reality in the sense that these were viruses that got into the high-definition televisions. Every TV set in the world has a, you know, this monster chip in it now to process all the, the data. And 
I was imagining a virus, an artificial life form that wanted to live in the TV sets. And of course, the character is charged with treason uh, <laughs> for destroying a national resource. Uh, here's a little painting of the, uh, the hacker and the ant. And uh, this, uh, one of the things about VR, things like Second Life, um, I've never really related to those types of virtual reality where it's sort of an empty room with a lot of polygons. I don't know. There's, there's teenagers wearing masks and they don't talk to me. <laughs> Just sitting up my back. So if I do VR, I like to see something that's... And I started as a mathematician. I like to see something that I wouldn't be able to see otherwise. And one thing I've used VR for a little bit is looking into four-dimensional worlds. Now that my grad students do some projects, uh, one of the best things, there's a shooting game where you were shooting in hypercubes. That was very cool. And, uh, another thing that interests me in virtual reality is dynamically interesting spaces. Um, and here, this is where I've worked on those. I've worked on with uh, cellular automata a lot. And uh, in particular, I'm one of the few people that work with continuous valued cellular automata, which is where, like the game of life, you have one bit per pixel, but continuous valued cellular automata, you have a floating point number at each pixel. And it turns out the rule for the wave equation is actually a very simple rule. It's like you take the average of your neighbors and subtract your previous state. That's your update. And if you do that, you get you know, waves like in water. And, uh, that's so much not a graphic issue, it's more of a computation issue, but I'm sure uh, we could get Larry's cave to do this. Uh, I recently, again, as science fiction, I always like to take these things and do thought experiments of them in the science fictional world. So I recently actually wrote a story, there's been a million science fiction stories with virtual reality. It's almost like been done to death, so you have to come up with something new. Uh, in this story I wrote with Mark Laidlaw, it's actually on the cover of Isaac Asimov's. If you can find a story I wrote, it still sells science fiction magazines. It's this month's issue. And this is the cover painting, it's very cool. And the reason those waves look weird is uh, I was using a cubic nonlinear wave equation. So I got the artist to look at these simulations of waves that they don't look quite like real waves. Okay? So they're, they've got these cubic nonlinearities in them. And uh, they See, they have surfboards in the cave, and those are aqua-haptic feedback devices that uh, deal with the feeling that they're on the surf. And uh, it's kind of a nice little story. It's called The Perfect Wave. Since it's a science fiction story, of course, the simulation gets loose and eats the universe. Uh, another thing that interests me is uh, bringing the real world into uh, into our simulations. And there's sort of this movement of uh, Lockett and Mark that you hear about. And the idea is affixing GPS points to things in the world and uh, maybe overlaying computer graphics onto it or gluing together images of the world. That's some picture of the Gothic blimpworks outside. And it's glued together for four or five little photos I took yesterday. And uh, that's something that sort of interests me more than being in an airport lounge. Uh, 
made of polygons. <laughs> now, in discussing cyberspace, we always have to get the word from the prophet, William Gibson, so that he is speaking to you now. In his, uh, his recent book, Coop Country, he always says, Bill has this wonderful way of summarizing things. And he says, ah, cyberspace has everted, or turned inside out. And once it everts, that there isn't any cyberspace, is there? There never was if you want to look at it that way. There was a way we had of looking where we were headed, a direction. With the grid, we're here. This is the other side of the screen. And the context where he's saying that, there are some locative artists, and they're doing things like, oh, designing a giant squid in virtual reality and then having it be draped over the Transamerica building in San Francisco. So you can be wearing these special glasses, you walk down the street, you see the giant squid there, it's in your reality. So it's come out of the computer into your space. And that's something that is really interesting. It's an extreme form of when you go to a museum and you get an audio guide. And people have done that, artists. You walk around and you hear descriptions of what you're looking at but it would be kicking it up a notch and projecting things over. Uh, another thing that his artists do is you can go to all the spots in Hollywood where famous stars die and see their corpses still there. Which <laughs> is the kind of thing that public likes. Uh, another thing that's interesting a lot over the years is the idea of uh, telepresence, but uh, where you're in some way in control of the camera. And there's this dream of dragonfly cameras. It was even sort of a kind of a UFO thing about a hiding glass that's fall. People claimed they were seeing dragonfly cameras watching them at demonstrations that the NASA had built them. Hadn't told anyone yet. Which I'm sure NASA wishes that was true. But uh, these are uh, it's it's this model of you know you, the camera lens on your, your pocket digital camera is they're really small. It's, so it'd be easy to make. And with charge coupled devices, it'd be easy to make a really good camera that was you know, the size of your, your little finger, even smaller. You give it wings. And so the dream is that you could have, uh, again, you'd be sitting at home with your display and you'd be driving this thing around. Like, like the Mars rover, except you're using it like to see what's going on in the alleys of San Francisco or one thing, whenever you go on a trip somewhere, you, you go on the web and you see pictures of the places you're going to stay, and everything looks nice, and then you go there and, oh, well, by the way, you know, it's next to a, you know, an iron smelter, or there's a, you know, there's, there's a prison next door, or, you know, a dump, or, and you're never able to look around at will, and there are these, these things people have done, like Google has things where you can walk down the streets, but to have you be in control of the camera would be a big deal. And that's something I see coming online. And the way it'll work is there'll be racks of these dragonflies in, in various cities. And you can just dial up. You can rent one for an hour. You can fly it around. And you can look whenever you want to. It'll be somewhat of an issue. People will be a paparazzi kind of thing. Be a big swarm of them following Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of cool. Uh, I guess you have a body right with a tennis racket. <laughs> I talked about that a little bit in my novel. It's not so now, the latest thing I'm into is uh, it's a novel I just wrote called Post Singular. And actually, in a new marketing, a bold new marketing move, we decided to try giving away the book online as well as selling it. 
So if you go to that link, rudyrocker.com slash postsingular, you can get a PDF of it and read it for free. Now the idea I got into here was, what if uh, we really like, totally everted cyberspace? And so the idea here was I had self-reproducing nanomachines that are called ORFIDs. And that's sort of a pun on ORFID, radio frequency ID things, RFID. They self-reproduce. They need, just eat dust in the air. They're not destructive. And what about gray goo? Well, we're going to suppose that the ORFIDs are territorial. They stay a certain distance from each other. They're not going to, they're going to cover Earth's surface, but only down to one or two a millimeter. So it's like in the Hollywood movies when you see the image where somebody discovers that he was living in a virtual reality, suddenly he sees the mesh under everything. This is, we've gotten a mesh on everything. Everything, because there's these ORFIDs all over anything. So you can, what about, what's your interface? Well, we might as well assume they've landed on your skull and they're doing little, little tight magnetic uh, coil type waves and you've got the internet in your head. So you can essentially close your eye and see anything in the world because everything is covered with this mesh. And the mesh is also velocity sensitive so you can hear things, so you'll be able to see everything. Also, each orphan has memory, so they're gonna store the past states. So you can see everything in the world all the time, forward and backwards. And how's that gonna change society? Well, a lot. I mean, privacy, privacy's gone. And in a way, when I write science fiction, it's usually, in some sense, a metaphor. And this, in some sense, is a metaphor for our life right now. Privacy, I mean, what was the big deal about privacy? Who needed it? It's gone. Okay. Uh, she let herself see the dots on her fingers, the dots on her palms, dots all over her skin. The glowing vertices were connected by faint lines of the lines forming triangles. A fine mesh of small triangles covered her knuckles. Of course, her mesh spanned the back of her hand. The computational orphanet was going to have real-time articulated models of everything and everyone. And that's uh, maybe there's some questions about how it's going to be to live in that world. So I'll stop. Thank you. You mentioned privacy not mattering. I'm curious about your thoughts on privacy and the current changes we're seeing in the world. Um, well, it's actually, I, I was talking to Esther Dyson once, not too long ago, at the Accelerating Change Conference. And she had done this thing of making her medical records public. She said people are saying, well, that's the one thing I have to keep private is my medical records. And she said, I'm just going to make mine public. Why not? It's probably safer. And uh, I'm a blogger. And if you, be, if you get into being a blogger, then you, you begin to let go of a certain amount of privacy. Like, people tend to know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe four or 5,000 people look at my blog every day. So they all know that I'm here giving this talk. And so am I worried that they're going to assassinate me? Um, I was at first, but now you know, <laughs> I've been blogging for a couple of years, and I, it doesn't look like it's going to be. Is that good? It's the John Lennon's they assassinate. They know they assassinate Ringo Starr. <laughs> Very good. 
so it's it's you do. Of course, realistically, I don't put pictures of my family on the blog. Usually, you know, there's you don't really. But I think it's just it's a dialogue that it's worth considering how important is privacy. And you might say, well, the government can find things out about you and persecute you. But if it's universal, the loss of privacy, then you know all the same bad things about them. I mean, the bad things that people do, there's like four or five bad things that people do. And everybody does them. And at some point, maybe we could be less of a Puritan, uptight society. <laughs> so you say you don't blog about your family. Do you ask people's permission if you blog about a conversation that you had with them? Uh, usually. So questions? I mentioned in my talk that there's a wilderness sky, and there's some implications of that in terms of thought that I think a lot of people aren't aware of in our society. I've spent a lot of my time out in the wilderness by myself, and nobody else has thought some things in my mind. Nobody knew what I, where I was, what I was doing, whether I lived or died. And what I've found in that sort of environment is that um, it gives you a freedom to examine things that you otherwise don't have in the space. I mean, as, as interesting and fascinating as it is to be in this room, there's a lot of thoughts in here that sort of influence how your own thoughts go. Mm -hmm. And when I'm out in the blizzard in the mountains where nobody knows where I am, none of that is there. It's just my own thoughts. I, I've been accused of thinking outside the box, and I just say, what box? I mean, I'm thinking in a realm that is very different from the domain that most people are establishing their thoughts. And I think that that's why Walt Whitman said that we need wilderness behind civilization. We need to be able to get out, away, and think of things in a perspective. When I come back from wilderness to our society, and I think a lot of the astronauts have experienced this sort of thing, um, they're looking at things in a perspective that otherwise they don't have or wouldn't have. Um, yeah, I, I very much relate to what you're saying. Uh, I also am somebody, I love to be out in the wilderness. And, uh, or even like the bluffs in, in Santa Cruz, you know, if you go to, up the coast. Yeah, I like that. You know, I can lie on the ground and there's nobody around. Nobody's going to say, are you all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I'm lying here. I'm thinking. Okay. Uh, and this, there is sort of a, somewhat of a pressure to conform if you're in a group of people. Uh, so it's also very nice to get away from the web. Uh, certainly in this world that I'm describing, it would be nice. You definitely would want to be able to turn off the internet in your head. You really do not want that on all the time, especially with the spam coming in <laughs> uh, while you're asleep. <laughs> spam dreams. Uh, so I think. Uh, in the end, I, I sort of don't like computers. It's, it's a thing of familiarity breeds contempt. I spent so much time with them in the last 20 years. Uh, if you look at watches, hardly anybody has a watch that has gears anymore. And I think in 100 years, you probably won't see very many computer chips. I think we're going to be using something different. I think the digital computers, they're so brittle. 
they're so tiresome. I think they're going to go away. And I think we're going to be using something different. Uh, if quantum computation pans out, the thing about quantum computation that most people don't quite realize yet is that essentially any physical object at all is a quantum computer. And, you know, anything, a rock is carrying out, you know, really a lot of universal computation. All we have is there's a little bit of the input output problem. Yeah. <laughs> Once we get that linked, I mean, you, you won't have these, these special things. Basically, any object you want will do some computing for you if you want it to. Actually, that's the theme I'm writing in the sequel to this book, Post Singer. I'm writing a book called Hylozoic. And that's a legitimate Wikipedia word. It means the philosophical doctrine that everything is alive. And I'm writing about a world where somehow they've managed to provide a, a RAM upgrade to every atom in space. So all the objects have memory, and now somehow we've got the input output problem solved. So essentially every object is acting like it's alive and we can talk to it. And uh, that's a strange idea. Whenever I tell it to people, there's this silence. <laughs> it's uh, sometimes I'm too far ahead of my time. But uh, I think it's a cool idea. And the whole puzzle, the game in science fiction is to take a really strange idea and then put it into a world where a virtual world where you have romances, you have adventures, you have people trying to destroy the planet, you have people trying to save the planet. You've got, you know, jokes, you've got art, you've got things happening, and you make it, you get it into a form where it's entertaining, and uh, I usually don't know exactly where the book's going when I start. I mean, I outline and I outline, but I always end up being surprised at what happens. And that's because it's a thought experiment. Uh, I'm seeing what happens. Wonderful thoughts, um, In this post-privacy world, which I, my thoughts are pretty similar to yours on this, um, that privacy is a kind of a couple of century uh, odd thing that developed once we had big cities uh, a couple hundred years ago, and now it's going back to where we all look at the villages and the resident privacy and what we're about everybody. But it seems to me that NASA has a real opportunity to be a leader in looking over the horizon in this post-privacy world. Because the astronauts, I mean, their bodies are, are monitored 24-7. They have, you know, cameras everywhere. And if you think about going to the moon, going to Mars, you know, you, you aren't in a private situation the way we would like to think we're in now. So maybe there's some actual research on the psychological and social um, outcomes of living in a total post-privacy world that NASA could, could focus on. That's an interesting thought. Um, I do. I don't want to give the impression that I think it would be good to get rid of privacy. I'm, I'm more with the, the wilderness. I mean, if you've ever had children, when they're teenagers, you become very aware that they need their privacy. I mean, that's sort of what teenage rebellion is all about. And even with your spouse, it's like, there's a level of intimacy where, you know, did you tie your shoes? You know, there's, you don't want to get that, you know. So, uh, it's, it's a tricky thing. But, uh, it's, it's just interesting to think about a world where it really is gone. Yeah, and then, it, are there physiological effects? Uh, what's, what's, gonna, what's it going to lead to? That would be one of the, that would be, a, I had never thought about that, uh, being an astronaut. That could get on your nerves. 
having a room full of 200 people watching everything you do. I think the medical data of the astronauts is private. Well, but um, it's, there's, some, there's a whole set of people on Earth, like this shuttle, is this whole vast array of people on Earth and a couple of people up in the shuttle. And that community, everybody down on Earth is, in fact, knowing about that. Now, the fact that it's a limited community still means that your particular person privacy isn't private to you anymore. That there are people who know more things about your medical condition. That there are people who know more about your medical condition than you are an astronaut condition than you know. There are people watching your heart rate who know things that you're not aware of. Beyond privacy. I often wish everyone knew about my medical condition. I have so many aches and pains. Universal healthcare. Your novel, uh, actually I've been looking at a few of your, your novels on, on Amazon and online, some of the, the outlines of them, and find that there, a lot of science fiction has these amazing ideas, these creative, fascinating, interesting ideas, but most often they are centered around uh, doom and destruction of some kind, you know. This great idea which ultimately collapses to, you know, the end of the world or the end of the species or war or something. Um, do you have any positive science fiction views of the future that you could summarize? Well, one thing I see happening with the OrphanNet, I can tell you a lot. One thing that happens is people get this immense intelligence augmentation. And that's sort of, we've, we've got that in a way already with Google. I mean, science fiction writers used to dream of the planetary computer that knew everything and you could ask it a question and it would give you the answer right away. And we have that. Right? It's just, it's just, it just, you know, and it just happens sort of without a noticing. And it, and the thing that it still can't do for you, you can't uh, spawn off processes. Like suppose I want to worry about my social security or I want to worry about my insurance or something. It would be nice to just slave off a process that would go and do obsessive compulsive research on this and, uh, you know, tabulate everything and then come up, you know, with some reasonably good recommendation. Or if I want to know what should I do this afternoon instead of surfing over, I could just, again, slave off a process. Or even, uh, you could get more sophisticated. What I should I put in my cha last chapter of my book and I should could clone off a couple of things to someone similar to me that would write alternate versions of this election. So I think I think this is something that, that we'll see is uh, sort of virtual agents that are going to be doing a lot of work for us in the web. And I think that might happen if we become telepathically linked. Uh, really having telepathy. People with cell phones, they're very close to being telepathic. They're walking down the street hearing voices and talking to people and they're not crazy. And if you could get the cell phone, you know, a little smaller, you could make it a pill that you take or something. And uh, you could start getting other people to, to work, maybe share out, you know, here's something I'm thinking about, can you help me with this? A, a little bit like a forum where you ask people questions and they give you answers. You're sort of making agents out of the world. So that's, I, I see a lot of positive things coming in there, actually. Yeah, hi. Um, 
I come into this whole thing in, um, I'm a, a painter, I'm an art, a paint artist who got into um, digital arts through through 3D, and I end up in in a big hotel like NASA, which is kind of cool. Um, so I got kind of came here through the back door, and maybe even the trap door. And um, for me, um, a canvas is a 2D space, and then to take that into a computer environment puts another dimension. It puts a Z onto it, and it puts me into the 3D space. And we've been recently working with Google and using the time slider. And if that allows you to commute in, in T, which puts 4D into the, the equation, which is utterly fascinating. And Are you saying you do a series of paintings and I can slide back and forth? No, no, no. What, I, I, I started off as a painting. Yeah. We have, um, so we have an X and a Y. Yeah. So you work into, you then flop that into you know, 3D Max or something like that. Yes. You've got your Z and you can tessellate. Yes. And then, and now you can put a time slider into Google Earth. It's what we do when we make the KMZ files drop them into Google Earth. Oh, I see. And now you can be a time, you can be a tight. You can, you can whip through time uh, backwards and forwards. And um, that now you're talking about uh, shooting hypercubes, which takes into other, di other dimensions. And I think it's uh, it's really fascinating. I think that, that te technology is kind of boring people, and I think it takes people like uh, people like yourself um, who make Googles and, of, of technology for other people to expand upon. And I think that um, science fiction is uh, a, a, a genesis. It's a multi-force in this process. It's very vital, and it's not frivolous. And I think the chuckles that you're breathing today are the hours of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's certainly. Uh... Yeah, I really, I don't understand why there isn't any good four-dimensional video game. Um, there, there really should be. There's a recent digital movie, uh, Cloud Band. Weirdly, there's two versions of Cloud Band came out the same year. And uh, they're sort of moving towards the idea of a four-dimensional movie, but it really is not, it wouldn't be that hard to do at this point. Thomas Banshoff of Brown University was an early person who did a lot of great visualization movies and hypercubes and other four-dimensional objects. So that's something uh, I would really like to see. But that's all we Thank you very much for tuning into the special Biota podcast. Of course, Biota Live will go on at the usual time, Friday night Pacific, 8pm. And this coming week will be the Saturday matinee at 10am Pacific as well, in order to get folks on the East Coast and folks in Europe to contribute, possibly even call in live. Thank you very much for tuning into this podcast. Look forward to you tuning into the next podcast.